I was sitting on a Disney ride, getting ready to go, receiving the little orientation video before you, before you take off. It was really great. Now, last week, Paul described the church as the household of God. But the church in Ephesus needed some reminders of how a household of God ought to behave. At the end of chapter 1, Paul once again stressed the importance of guarding sound doctrine and confronting false teaching. At times, that may require naming and disciplining those guilty of spreading false teaching. In Ephesus, that was men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul challenged the Christians in Ephesus to pray. They should pray that all people come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel, the good deposit. They should pray that those in positions of worldly authority would allow the church to live peacefully and thus do its ministry faithfully. In the middle of chapter 2, Paul outlined appropriate conduct for both the Christian men and the Christian women in that church. The men were instructed to pray without quarreling. The women were called to worry less about impressing others with their appearance and more about pursuing godliness. And then finally, at the end of chapter 2, Paul gets into all kinds of trouble with his words about women in church leadership. Paul does not relegate women to the sidelines of ministry. From his own experience, Paul knew better than most how necessary women were to the advancement of the gospel and the powerful ways that God could use them in that mission. He benefited from it. Paul was no misogynist. He was not arguing that women are inferior to men. However, he does seem to argue in the text that in the church... Teaching and exercising authority is limited to men. To make that point, Paul cited the book of Genesis, both the order in which Adam and Eve were created before the fall and the circumstances of the fall itself. In Paul's mind, those past events ought to inform the leadership of the church today, the household of God. Now, those are all important characteristics of how the church the gathered, justified, still being sanctified body of Christ ought to function. And if the church actually puts all of those things into practice, it will certainly stick out from the world. Many of these practices directly conflicted with the prevailing attitudes and opinions of Paul's day and age, and they do the same in our day and age. But that's not a bad thing. In fact, the household of God should stick out from the world around it. And if we don't, then something might be wrong. But another important area of Paul's instruction for the church, how it ought to behave, comes today in chapter 3. Paul focuses his attention on leadership. He addresses questions like, who should a church's leaders be? What should they do? And how should they act? And the text gives us some answers. So starting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, open your Bibles there. We encourage you to follow along both here at the church and on the live stream as well. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that tells us who you are and what you've done, and who we are, and what we've done. 
Your word tells us of our need for your grace. Uh, Your word tells us of our sin. And that might be hard to read sometimes, but the only thing worse than being confronted with your sin is being guilty of sin and not knowing it. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word doesn't just tell us those big picture truths, but your word also tells us how we're called to behave as people who have been forgiven, people who have been justified, people who are in good standing with you by Christ's broken body and shed blood. You tell us what comes next. You tell us who we are, and then you tell us how we ought to live as a result of that. And that's what your word is about today in 1 Timothy 3. And so I pray that we would take these truths and put them into practice, that we would do it in a way that glorifies you, that we would embrace the callings that you've given to us, and that we would live as the justified people, that our church would be the household of God that you call us to be. Lord, we praise you, we love you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. While this particular passage repeats the term overseer, that word can be used almost interchangeably with the word elder in the New Testament. We see that in passages like Titus chapter 1 and Acts chapter 20. Paul refers to the same group of people in those verses as both overseers as well as elders. An elder is one who oversees a local church, like the ones we have here at Prairie View. And if you go back to what Paul just said in chapter 2, which we covered last week, An elder is one who teaches and exercises authority within the household of God. The Apostle Peter addresses elders as well in 1 Peter chapter 5. In his words, Peter stresses the role of elder as a shepherd, as Zach mentioned a few minutes ago. An elder is one who cares for God's flock. He doesn't do it under compulsion. He doesn't do it by obligation or under pressure. He does it because he desires that role. He desires everything that comes along with it, even the joys, the privileges, the responsibilities, and inevitable stresses. So now that we have some basic idea of what an elder is, we can talk about the kind of men Paul thinks elders ought to be. And there are a few qualifications in that list that really stick out. The first is that phrase above reproach in verse 2. It frames everything that comes after it. 
Above reproach does not mean perfect. No elder is perfect. But it does stress the high standards that elders are called to and the kind of public standing they must have. To be an elder, you ought to display an uncommon degree of spiritual maturity. Where the rubber meets the road, this can be seen, for example, in an elder's home. If he's married, he's faithful to his wife. If he has kids, he exemplifies godliness to them in hopes that it might rub off on them by God's grace. And it makes so much sense for Paul to stress that an elder ought to lead his own household well, especially if the church is God's household. The logic is pretty simple. If you can't lead your own household, how do you expect to lead God's? Another qualification that sticks out in verse 2 is that phrase, able to teach. This is one of the few qualifications in the list mentioned for elders that isn't mentioned for deacons, which we'll read about here in just a moment. And that right there tells you something about the different functions of these two groups of people, these two roles. That was particularly important, being able to teach In the immediate context of 1 Timothy, the elders in that church in Ephesus had failed to meet that qualification. They hadn't lived up to it. They were not able to teach. And you can tell this because some of them had become false teachers. A good elder is someone who knows sound doctrine and communicates it well. A good elder is someone who can identify and confront Bad teaching. That's what it means to be able to teach. And then finally, that phrase, not a lover of money, in verse 3, sticks out. We already briefly mentioned Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter 5 as well. These three passages, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, are considered the go-to elder passages in the New Testament. And all three of them clearly address an elder's relationship with money. Now, sadly, we've probably all heard stories of an elder, a church leader, bringing a church to public shame because they did something scandalous with money. Greed was a major temptation for church leaders back then, and it still is today. These qualifications are timeless. Now, there are a few questions that these verses often raise. For example, what about men who are divorced? What about men who are single? What about men with no kids? Well, the list should not be enforced too rigidly. Single men can serve as elders. Paul was single. So was Timothy. And Paul greatly applauds those Christian men and Christian women who choose to be single in service to Christ. And while the text does assume that an elder usually will be married and usually will have kids, it's not disqualifying if he doesn't. And as for men who are divorced, well, that certainly depends on the situation. There are other New Testament passages that address divorce and remarriage. And those would come into the equation at that point. But divorce is not an automatic disqualification in this church. 
And then what about the other qualifications in the list? Well, instead of picking each of them apart one by one, we can say this. An elder ought to be a man who displays the sort of Christian maturity that really every believer is called to. He ought to be a man who is clearly being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. A man who is displaying the fruit of the Spirit. He ought to be experienced because if a man becomes an elder too soon, he may be set up to fall into pride or temptation. He ought to represent the church well among outsiders. The church's reputation should not be harmed by being associated with him. As Paul says, there is nothing the devil would like more than that. Now, this list of qualifications might sound like a lot of pressure for a current or potential elder. And let's be honest, it is. But as Paul said in verse one, eldership is a noble task. Godly and capable elders are a necessary ingredient to any healthy household of God. Again, no elder will be perfect. So we shouldn't put them on too high of a pedestal. We shouldn't be surprised when they sin. We shouldn't be surprised when they slip up. But we should still have high standards. As James says, James chapter 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And for churches, I don't think we're usually tempted to hold elders to too high of a standard. If anything, we're often tempted to have our standards too low for elders. But let's pick up in our passage, 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, Not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in light of what we just read in verses 1 through 7, what's the difference between the qualifications for elders in those first verses and the qualifications for deacons in these verses, verses 8 through 13? Well, to be honest, there isn't much difference. There's a lot of overlap in these two passages. But as we mentioned a few minutes ago, the biggest and most notable difference is that elders must be able to teach. That qualification is not repeated for deacons, which may tell us that deacons function more in a service-oriented role, while elders function in more of an oversight role. The word for deacon can be translated more directly as servant. In Acts chapter 6, the passage often identified with the first deacons in the New Testament, those people were servants, responsible for meeting the practical and material needs within the church. 
That way the apostles could focus more on the spiritual needs of the church. Another possible difference between elders and deacons is the role of women. As we mentioned last week, in light of Paul's words in chapters 2 and 3, our church holds to the interpretation that eldership is limited to men. However, and we need to stress that the text is not entirely clear, it's possible that Paul may have allowed space for women to serve as deacons. In the history of the church, there certainly seems to be a stronger precedent for women serving as deacons than there is for women serving as elders. I've always thought that while we don't call them deacons, our church's administration team functions a lot like deacons. They take care of many of the practical needs of the church. That way the elders can focus more on the spiritual needs of the church. And we do have women serving on our administration team. But again, it's worth stressing that many of the qualifications mentioned for elders are repeated for deacons. Deacons are to be mature believers, good managers of their households, and have good reputations outside of the church. And their role might not sound as impressive, might not sound as weighty as that of elders, but good deacons, good servants, play a vital role in a healthy household of God. A church needs both overseers and servants to function appropriately. So in short, good leadership matters. We know it's true in sports. We know it's true in business. We know it's true in politics. We know it's true in the military. And it's no less true in the church. A church's leadership is not going to perfectly mirror a sports team or a business venture, a political party or a military hierarchy. And in many ways, it shouldn't. But the overarching truth remains across all those different areas of life that good leadership really matters. That was true for the church in Ephesus. We see what happened there when they didn't have good leadership. And leadership matters in this church today. So here are a few words that is currently serving as leaders at our church, myself included. Number one, be challenged by this passage. Think of the qualifications here. And if there is some way that you fall short, ask God to grow you and shape you into a better leader, a better follower of Jesus. On top of that, this passage should give you some reminders. If you're a leader here and you've lost sight of the responsibilities, the role that you fulfill, then remember that this morning. We will answer to God for how we function as leaders of his church, how we shepherd his flock, how we care for his people, how we manage his household. And then pray. Because you can't be a good elder. You can't be a good deacon. You can't be a good church leader in any capacity purely by your own knowledge, your own experience, your own skills, or your own charisma. You need God's help. You need the Holy Spirit's guidance. So if you care about leading this church well, 
which I believe that all the leaders here do, then let this passage challenge you to grow. Let it remind you of your calling. And let it drive you to your knees in prayer. And now a few words to those not currently serving as leaders here, but still just as much a part of this household of God. You too should be challenged by this passage. A frequent topic of conversation in elders meetings over the past few years is the need for the next generation of leaders at Prairie View. There are people sitting in this room who are not leaders right now, but could be in the future. And so I pray that the words of this passage would not intimidate you, would not discourage you from aspiring to leadership in this church. But rather, they would challenge you to grow into the leaders this church needs, both now and in the future. You, too, should be reminded of some things in this passage. Be reminded of the responsibilities, the qualifications of church leaders, and hold us accountable to them. If there is some way that we are falling short in our calling, then tell us. It will be good for you. It will be good for us. It will be good for this church, and it will be good for God's kingdom for us to know what our weaknesses are and address them. And then you too should pray. As I just mentioned, we leaders cannot do this by our own strength. We need your prayers. We need your encouragement. Leadership at Prairie View is not some horrible cross to bear. Relatively speaking, we have it pretty easy most of the time. But we still need your prayers. And if all of us here in this church, those currently serving as leaders and those who are not, if all of us are challenged and reminded and driven to prayer by this passage, then our church will be a better place for all of us. So again, leadership matters in the local church. So do all the things that we talked about last week. All of this helps us in our mission to be the household of God, to point the eyes of a watching world to Jesus Christ, the one who has called us together into this family. So may our behavior as believers, may our behavior as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, May it all testify to the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, rather than call it into question. And then just in case we forgot who Jesus is and what he has done during all this talk about our behavior in the household of God, Paul ends the chapter with a quick reminder. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what we've talked about these past two Sundays. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world taken up in glory. Everything we've talked about these past two Sundays revolves around Jesus. That's why Paul ends the chapter by singing about it. Verse 16 is likely an early Christian hymn. 
or perhaps a creed. Apart from Jesus, even if our church appears to be a well-oiled machine, apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We'd be no different from any other well-run nonprofit organization, social club, or interest group. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good deposit. It's the mystery of godliness revealed in the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God, in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. That's what makes us a household of God. It all revolves around him. So I pray that that would shape how we live. I pray that would shape how we function. I pray that would shape how we act and how we speak and how we think, how we serve, how we love. We've been called together as this family of God, this household of God by Christ himself. It all revolves around him. And as we seek to glorify him with our behavior, with what we do here in this place, every Sunday and every other time as well, I pray that our behavior would bring him glory. That everything we do would be a way of singing his praises. The way Paul does at the end of chapter 3. We are a household of God. Let's act like it for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word that we read this morning. Thank you that, like we said earlier, we don't have to guess about who you are. We don't have to guess who we are. We don't have to invent you in our own minds. We don't have to create some image of who you are because you've revealed yourself to us. And on top of that, we don't have to invent or come up with or create what we're called to do here as a church. You've laid out for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would operate, that we would live, that we would act as the household of God that you've declared us to be. That we are not children of wrath, but rather by your grace, by the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we are children, we are heirs, we are joyful servants. And so, Lord, help us to act like it. Help us to live as your family, to behave as your household so that we might bring you glory and that more people might come to know you. Lord, again, we thank you for who you've declared us to be. And now we ask that you help us as we live out this truth as your children and as brothers and sisters and as a church. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.